Once again, beloved, we open our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And today we're picking it up, verses 17 to 19, uh, where we left off last week. Deuteronomy 6, verses 17 to 19. Hear now the word of your Lord. Ye shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and his testimonies, and his statutes, which he hath commanded thee. And thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest go in and possess the good land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, to cast out all thine enemies from before thee, as the Lord hath spoken. May the Lord bless this, the reading, the preaching, the hearing, the believing, and the living of his holy word. Well, last week we could summarize the text as mainly this, don't make God jealous. Don't make God jealous. This week, you could say, how do we be careful not to make God jealous? How do we do that? Positively, by being zealous. Don't make God jealous by being zealous. You know, the only way we really start to do anything for the Lord, the only way we keep at it, and certainly the only way we really finish, is by Him putting a zeal for Him and His ways in our heart. The only way we really do anything wholeheartedly is that He puts that zeal in our love and delight in it. May the Lord do that this day. Because God's people, given Christ's goodness and goodly heritage, must do his good works with a good attitude. I give that to you as the main idea of our text today. God's people, given Christ's goodness and goodly heritage, must do his good works with a good attitude. I want to encourage you to be mindful of our study on Wednesday nights of the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer with Thomas Watson. That is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I want to remind you how much we've been studying Satan's craftiness, his subtle craftiness of tempting us to foolishly choose to do bad evil works instead of good works for the Lord. I want you to have that in view. Remembering how several verses in this chapter and another were quoted by Jesus during the wilderness temptation in Matthew 4. And have you heed these words by John D. Curd about our text today? He writes, The heart of Jesus' response to the devil is one weapon. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Ephesians 6, verse 17. He goes on to write, Jesus does not banter, dialogue, or debate the devil. He merely speaks the word of God, and he is obedient to it. That's precisely what Moses calls for in Deuteronomy. Israel will have success if she keeps and obeys God's word. 
Beloved, you are on a pilgrimage through the world's wilderness to survive and thrive. Have an enthusiastic eye to do God's will. As Jesus said himself in Psalm 40, verse 8, as quoted in part in Hebrews 7 and 9, I do delight to do thy will. That's the heart of Jesus, the perfect son, the truly beloved. I delight to do thy will, even in the wilderness, even after going through famine and struggle and loneliness. I delight to do thy will, and I will not turn to the gods of this world, and I will not let devil turn me to make an idol of him. That needs to be the heart, the heart of Christ, beloved, just like Jesus. And because of Jesus... Follow Jesus and be zealous of good Christian works. That is the message for you from this text today. That's the main point to to bring home and drive home. Be zealous of good Christian works. First of all, do good for the Lord. Do good for the Lord. Just as a son works hard and does great work, not just mediocre work, skips some things, but does it all and does it well, that reflects his father. That reflects on his father who trains him to be like that. Especially if his father told him to do it. He's careful to get it all done and all of it done and all of it done well as showing that he's my father and I'm his son. So God calls Israel in the collective singular often my beloved son as a type of Christ. And that's important as we continue thinking about this in Christ himself. He thinks of Israel as his son. And he's calling upon his son to be a faithful son, which is to do everything he commands. And do it with the love and affection of a a son. Look at verse 18. The first part, Deuteronomy 6, verse 18, the first part. And thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord. Right and good. Well, what is right? What is good? It's what God says is good. It's what God says is right. Remember, we're coming off of the Ten Commandments here. It's what he says is right and good, and that's what this book is all about. In the eyes of the Lord, before his face, all his commandments we see in verse 17. All his decrees, all his statutes that he's commanded you. Look at verse 17. What is right and good? It's what's good and right in his eyes. Well, what is that? Verse 17. The commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he hath commanded thee. It's not what you and I say are right. It's not what society says is right. It's what God says is good. And right. He alone is infinitely, eternally, unchangeably good himself. And his law reflects that. Remember now that what we're doing is going through an exposition and an application of the Ten Commandments by Moses. Remember, Deuteronomy is a larger version of the Ten Commandments in a, in a short form of a covenant peace treaty, reflecting those of the ancient Near East. And so there is the preamble establishing and reminding the relationship of a, of a king and a conquered people. 
uh, I, you will serve me and I will protect and take care of you. Then the, the historical prologue, which was really long through chapter 4, of look at all that I've done for you. Don't make the same mistakes, but also don't forget all the mercy. And now here we are, we're about to go back in the promised land, the second generation, so I review the Ten Commandments with you. I review my vows to my church. And after he gives those Ten Commandments in short form, then following the example of these peace treaties, you get the the short law and then the exposition and application of how to live it out. And that's where we are now, and we're still in that of the first commandment. I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have none other gods before me. That is not in my presence. So in my presence, because the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, he is omnipresent, be doing good works. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 16, is something I want to draw to your attention, of good works. There's a whole chapter in our Confession of Faith that talks about good works. Now, we know we're not saved by good works. Lots of the Confession talks about that, and yet it points out we're saved unto good works. As the Reformers would say, the root is faith, the fruit of real faith is good works. So on the chapter 16 of good works, I want to review here a little bit of what actually is good works. It's what God's eyes say is good, remember. Uh, Section 1 of chapter 16 of the Confession of Good Works. Good works are only such as God has commanded in his holy word, and not such as, without the warrant thereof, are devised by men out of blind zeal, or upon any pretense of good intention. Notice that warning of blind zeal. There's a certain kind of zeal the scripture warns about, important because we're going to be thinking about a righteous proper zeal with the eyes opened by Christ. But notice the good works are not good unless they are what God says is good and right. And notice, just because we might have an idea, we think this is good, if God hasn't commanded it, it's not. Particularly, we have that in mind in worship. We don't do anything he has not commanded to do. Just because we've thought of it doesn't mean it's what he wants. Therefore, it's not good if he doesn't want it. The chapter goes on to say, not only is a work good and right, only if it's what God commands or by necessary implication, chapter 1 of the Confession. Deduced. Not only is it only good, but it's also only good in Christ. It's only received by God as good in Christ our mediator through his blood and by his representation. If we try to go before the Lord, even pretending to live His what he says is good and right on our own, because we don't do it perfectly, we don't love the Lord with our whole heart, we don't love our neighbor as ourself, we sin against him in thought, words, and deeds by what we do, by what we have left undone. There's nothing that we do right. All our righteousnesses, so to speak, as the Bible says, are as filthy rags before him. That's what Paul says. What does he say? Remember in Philippians, we've been looking at a little while ago, chapter 3, all of my works that I might say are good outside of Christ are, I'll use the nice word, dung. I pushed it a little bit in the sermon there, what he's really getting at. It's nothing. It's disgusting before the Lord. So even though he calls us to do it, it's only good if it's in Christ because of his good and perfect work on our behalf, his representing us before God. Otherwise, whatever we try to offer before the Lord's no good, however much he might have commanded it because it's never done perfectly. And if it's not perfect, it's no good. That's why we turn to Christ to pay for our sins, violating his law, missing the mark, and we trust in him for living it perfectly, perfectly on our behalf. And in him, he calls us to good works, and they're received in Christ. So outside of Christ, they're not received, but be encouraged Christians in Christ, 
They are received as good. This is encouraging and a motivation to be about it and to be about it zealously, to do good for the Lord. Back to chapter 16 of the Confession of Faith of Good Works, uh, paragraph 5. We cannot, by our best works, merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit, that is by our good works, we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty and our unprofitable servants, and because as they are good, they proceed from his spirit." And as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. We want to make sure we recognize. We're called unto good works, but the covenant of the work sends us to hell. The Ten Commandments in the ark condemn us to hell. Unless we have Christ and his propitiation, his blood, the mercy seed over the ark where the Ten Commandments are, we have Christ's blood, the propitiation for our sins. But let us not think for a moment that we can go to heaven by good works. That being said, we're called unto good works as those who've been called into being citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't call us to sin. He calls us to serve him in our salvation. Chapter 16, paragraph 6 of the Confession of Faith of Good Works. Notwithstanding what was just said in section 5, notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Praise the Lord. Let us be encouraged that in Christ, God receives our works because of Christ's good work on our behalf. And as we offer up good works as zealously as we can, let us say, Lord, forgive me. It's not perfectly zealous. It isn't perfect. It's far from it. All my righteousness are as filthy rags. I'm not worthy of the least of all your mercies. But in Christ, I offer up to them to you, thankful that in Christ they are sanctified and received and pleasing. In the eyes of the Lord. Not only that it would be good and right according to what God says, but also considering and respecting his omnipresence. In the eyes of the Lord, beloved, wherever you are at any moment, public and private, God is there. God is watching. What is Christ spoken of in the revelation to the seven churches of Asia? He is the fire in the lampstand. He's in our midst, judging, determining, correcting, commending, often correcting, we saw. God is everywhere. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere. We act like he's closing his eyes for a time. The psalm says, you know, the pagans say, God doesn't look. He's not seeing. He's not paying attention. But they answer in the psalm, yes, he is. And you want to be seen in the eyes of Christ because Proverbs 15 verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and 
the good. The summary of Ecclesiastes is basically serve the Lord, right? Fear him and serve him and do the, do the good things he calls upon us. He is seeing, he's observing everything. Sometimes when it's really bad, the times when he sends the worldwide flood or he destroys the Tower of Babel. But also Noah is said to have found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so God calls upon him to be that church as small as it is then. Keep that in mind uh, for this evening's message. He works through those who trust in the Lord and in his Christ and are willing to do what he calls them to do, even if it means building an ark for over 100 years when nobody knows what a boat's for at this time. And they must have been mocking him. But we do what the Lord says, his eyes always upon us, trusting in him, seeking to have favor, grace in the eyes of the Lord like Noah. So, beloved, be encouraged. 1 Peter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. And Matthew, uh, excuse me, and remembering also John 5, verse 30, Jesus says, I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Speaking of himself, here's how he speaks of those who would be his followers. Matthew 12, verse 50. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. And of course, his will includes repenting over our sins and trusting in Jesus' perfect works for our salvation and righteousness. Remember also Jeremiah 6, 16 that says, Walk in the old paths. The right ways. You'll have rest for your souls if you do. Philippians 3.16. Let's do the same thing. Mind the same thing. Matthew 7.14. It's the narrow way that leadeth unto life. Few find it. Few walk along it. Those scriptures are behind our church's personality statement, if you will, with our logo, which says, walking the same old good paths and right rule along the narrow way way. John D. Curd says this, the opposite of testing Yahweh, back to verse 16, the opposite of testing Yahweh is guarding his commandments carefully or diligently. This word um, for uh, keeping his commands diligently, uh, it's that idea of keeping, guarding, protecting. Remember even how partly to do that in Philippians 4 recently, by turning your worries into prayers and thinking the right things that God would have you think about and having the peace of God and the God of peace. Remember the Shorter Catechism developed a little bit in the Larger Catechism. Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer number one. What is man's chief end? What is your chief end, Christian, redeemed in God through Christ? To glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. That's the point of life. That's the point of new life and eternal life in Christ. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And the memory verse we have for that, could have picked many of them, but here's the one we've gone through. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Of God, But notice that emphasis of doing what you do. Good works to give glory to God. Oh, beloved, 
Let Nehemiah 4 verse 6 always be said of us. And may it be said of us and how we would come with an earnest, joyful heart at our work day coming up next month, or two months from now, I believe. Let Nehemiah 4, 6 always be said of us, the people had a mind to work. Good works for the Lord. Rebuilding the walls of the church. And ask Psalm 90, verse 17, as our request before him in so doing, ask that God would establish the work of our hands. So that all things go good for you, from the Lord. Do good for the Lord so that all things go good for you from the Lord. Another significant uh, part of our text today to think on. Think on this, those that expect to find gold up in them thar hills. They go after it with great effort and great excitement at great personal cough and sacrifice because of their expectation of reward for their exhaustive, enthusiastic work of mining. Uh, I know I've shared before, you go up in Julian, and there's not a lot of gold that was up there, but there was enough gold. You'd see the zeal in trying to get it, the hard, diligent work to get it, that they'd get the reward of it. They have these amazing machines that would just crush a ton of rock so they could slowly filter out, you know, through the water and the sieves, the little bit of gold that was there. It wasn't a lot. It wasn't like up north in 49er country. But they'd go at it so hard because it was worth it to get the gold nonetheless. I look at verses 18, the second part in verse 19. That it may be well with thee, And that thou mayest go in and possess the good land, which the Lord swear unto thy fathers. Do what is good in his sight, that it would go well or go good. The Hebrew for the word well is the same thing as good. So you got good, good, good in this verse. Uh, Do that which is good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be good with you. Same Hebrew word. And that thou mayest go in and possess the good land. Verse 19, to cast out all thine enemies from before thee as the Lord hath spoken. There is a correlation between their good works and enjoying the good land. That's why he's spending this time and warning them. How it goes for you in the good land is going to depend on how you live there. As you'll see in other scriptures, including Deuteronomy, the reason I'm getting rid of those before you is how they were living in the land. But if you end up turning to their gods and thus their lifestyles and their ways, I'll vomit you out of the land just like I have them before you and will before you. So there's a call to take this good land by being good people, living his good works that he's redeemed and saved them unto. Not to presume upon his grace and live like the heathen as if we're of the world instead of just in it, passing through as aliens and strangers. P.C. Craig explains, rather than testing God last week, rather than testing God, the people were to be diligent, first part of our text today, the people were to be diligent in their obedience of his commandments. Only by obedience would the people prosper in the land. The land was essentially good, verses 10 and 11, but the people would experience its goodness, verse 18, only when they were obedient to the Lord who had promised the land. 
Now, he has a similar thought ahead in Deuteronomy 11. Turn ahead with me. Keep this marked. We'll come back to it. By the way, we will go to Titus today. You might have Titus marked. I'm sorry I didn't remember to mention that earlier, but turn ahead with me. Keep Deuteronomy 6 marked, but Deuteronomy chapter 11. Just as we've seen many times, he's going to repeat many of these things. Why? Because we need to have it repeated. Why do people repeat themselves? Because it isn't done. And it's not done right. And we forget so easily. So God is reminding us. He repeats. Now there's development of thought we'll pay attention to as we go when we get to these chapters later. But look at chapter 11, beginning with verse 22. For if ye shall diligently keep all these commandments, which I command you to do them, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to cleave unto him, Then will the Lord drive out all these nations from before you, and ye shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves. Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours from the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even unto the uttermost sea shall your coast be. Sounds kind of like the prayer of Jabez, doesn't it? There shall no man, verse 25, there shall no man be able to stand before you. For the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that ye shall tread upon, as he hath said unto you. By the way, beloved, if you are diligently keeping God's commands, you will zealously, you and I will more zealously witness for the Lord. We will have victory. The Lord won't have us, we won't be fearing people and what they'll think about us. God will put the fear of God in them as he helps us give a witness and rewards us. But again, notice there's a connection between how they're going to live and whether or not the Lord will bless them to stay there. It's a good land flowing with milk and honey. Remember, he's already giving them houses and everything, furnished houses, don't have to do a thing. Vineyards that are all cultivated and prepared. Just go and enjoy it. Remember how big the grapes were? And yet the foolish first generation missed out. Remember how big those grapes they brought back? This is an amazing place. It's good. Go and enjoy it. But if you don't act good as I've made you good in Christ, if you don't live my good ways, don't expect me to allow you to continue to defame what I've given you without some consequence to cleanse you and right you, that you do give a good witness. But if you do, expect my blessing. Expect the rain. Expect blessedness. Again, all these things are pointing to heaven and pointing to Christ who does this for us perfectly. But recognize it's the same for you and me in our wilderness pilgrimage along the narrow way. Christ promises an abundant life along the way as we wait for eternal life. But if we're going to live against his good ways, we shouldn't expect it's going to go well for us. That's in one of the Ten Commandments, right? Honor your father and mother, that it would go well for you in the land. We say to our children sometimes, I want to bless you. I want to give you that. But you need to say please and you need to say thankful. And I didn't see that you mean it. And I need to see that you mean it and how you live consistently differently. We don't require perfection. We can't do that. But the Lord does. And he provides it for us in Christ, his perfect son. But be thankful, therefore, that Jesus passed the test. Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4 
course, his whole life, but in particular, facing the temptation in the wilderness. Be thankful that he passed the test on your behalf as God's only begotten beloved son. Remember again, Hebrews 11, verse 1, out of Egypt have I called my son. Referring to the the Israelites in the collective singular as a type of Christ, quoted about Jesus in Matthew 2 as he comes out of Egypt, fulfills that prophecy as the perfect son representing us all. Be thankful for him who lived this law perfectly, so that in him you have God's righteousness, thus you have God's gift of eternal life in the true promised land and the new Jerusalem in heaven, and it will never be taken away from you because of his perfect obedience and thus the complete and total reward. That's what this is pointing to. That being said, as well, along the way, let us also review the Confession of Faith, chapter 16, section 2, just a brief part right now. And you can think about this related to a sermon a little while ago on assurance. By them, that is by good works, believers strengthen their assurance. This is one of the rewards even in this life. The Lord will reward you as we say to our children when they choose to obey and thus I'll choose, uh, choose to obey God. We call on them. God's not going to bless your heart in disobedience. You won't feel good about it. God's going to bless your heart. And then when they do obey, whether the first time or when they change and obey, you see it in how they speak about it. You see it in their countenance. And you say to them, and they testify, amen. Yes, my heart feels good. I love God. That's the kind of thing you hear the children say when they've been doing something good and rejoicing. Also, they've been saying that rejoicing over there baby sister. (laughs) I love God. But recognize there is a strengthening in your assurance of salvation by good works. They don't give you salvation, but they strengthen your assurance of salvation. They testify to you that you're his children because you love him and you want to do what he says. You delight to do what he says because all he's done for you. Beloved, you too experience God's goodness more when you serve, seeking to hear at the end, but even now in the spirit, well done. Just as the good son that did all of his father's will is the one pointed out to you. Which one really did my will? The one, not that said I will and didn't, but the one that said I won't, but then did. At Christ's return and during his guidance as your great shepherd of the sheep, Be encouraged. Do good works, knowing that he says in the New Testament, he rewards those who diligently seek him. And he who wrote the whole Bible says in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, what you know very well, and we sing together often. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, Making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. 
yea, much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned and in keeping of them. There is great reward. That's a promise in the scriptures, and that's what the Lord is drawing your attention to today. I've given you something good. I've made you good. Do good with it. That it just keeps getting gooder for you. Better. More good. Have more of that abundant life. Why would you have less? Remember Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Now we particularly like to remember, and we think about this in the Lord's Supper, we usually recite this scripture. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's so important to remember. But it goes on to verse 10. For we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Good works are ordained for you. Not only are you ordained to be saved in Christ as his elect, you are ordained to do good works as his good people, to give a good witness and enjoy a good reward of a growth and assurance of salvation, and all the, all the good and blessed things that the Lord gives us. It's not a prosperity gospel. We know and we'll be reminded tonight in Philippians, uh, we're called to suffer for the Lord. We're called to sacrifice and struggle. But we, in Christ, have contentment that's not of this world, a peace that's not of this world. We learn to be content no matter what's happening to us. And we know we can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth us. So, beloved, let us do God's works that he's ordained for us before the foundation of the world in Christ. As he saved us by his good work in Christ, let us do them as good sons. Gladly do good for the Lord, so that all things go good for you from the Lord. And be zealous about doing good for the Lord. Be zealous about doing good for the Lord. And this, beloved, is where we come back to the Puritans. In the name of our church, we don't pretend to be, they don't pretend to be perfect, but our heart is we'd have the heart of the Puritans, a zeal for serving the Lord in every way he calls us to, and to not be brought down by other churches more or less pure that are not concerned about that. That he give us a heart, come what may with others of our brethren. That he would give us a heart like the Puritans, the Reformers, to seek to do everything he says and to not want to sin in inadvertence or ignorance. If he's revealed these things to us, show, help us to diligently seek him, that he would reward us with himself. Diligently seek his ways and his word, that we'd be walking closer to him and have the benefit of being closer to our good shepherd, because the sheep love to be near the good shepherd, and they are the most content and comforted the closer they are to the shepherd. Be zealous about doing good for the Lord. Not kind of, I'm coming, Lord. But, I'm coming, Lord. That's the kind of follow he wants. The kind of following when he says to the apostles in the gospel, follow me, boom, up and follow him. It says immediately they got up. That's a, that's a refrain there. Immediately. That's the way we are to be a disciple of Christ. Zealously following him. 
William Cowper writes of having a steadfast eye that would be a, a diligent, zealous heart. William Cowper writes this, None sends his arrow to the mark in view whose hand is feeble or his aim untrue. For though, ere yet the shaft is on the wing, or when it first forsakes the elastic string, it err, but little from the intended line. It falls at last far wide of his design. So he who seeks a mansion in the sky must watch his purpose with a steadfast That's why we call upon our children and students, and I'll call upon you sometimes. Are you listening? Doesn't look like it. I don't see you looking as I teach my children. Listening is not with your mouth. It's with your ears. It's also with your eyes. Steadfast eye. A single eye on the Lord. A single eye on Jesus. A single heart for his word and all of his word and nothing but his word. Because sin... The Bible tells us is missing the mark of God's righteous ways. And that comes with a lack of diligence, a lack of zeal. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You've probably heard sin explained that way. Sin is not hitting the target perfectly in the middle. It is. God requires perfection. But he wouldn't have us because he's made us perfect in Christ try for less and you know, hit the walls. None of us has fun playing with the magnet darts in the fellowship room, hitting the wall. I thought it was kind of funny, cute. They've put up a a big bulletin board behind the dart board, apparently for how often we miss. (laughs) Not to damage the walls. We want to hit the mark close. What do we do when we hit the mark? Yeah, look, look, look. That's what we want to do for the Lord. Yes, yes. And not draw attention to ourselves, but to God and Jesus Christ. Look what he's doing in our lives. Those justified in Jesus who wish to grow in mature sanctification will make earnest effort to keep trying to hit the mark. Because he's already hit it for us. Look at verse 17, the beginning of it all. Ye shall diligently keep the commandments. And this is what we're emphasizing today because it is the emphasis. It is in self an emphasis diligently. The Hebrew, as is often the case, when you see something like diligently keep, it's actually one word repeated in the Hebrew most often. It isn't earlier in one of the sections in Deuteronomy, but in this case, it's keep, keep. And in a way, two different ways of using that root word that it just makes it clear by emphasis of repetition, keep, really care, be careful, zealous, do this, diligently keep. Now, let's look where he's already spoken like this in Deuteronomy for review that he would revive our heart to keep it. Turn back to chapter 4 in the historic prologue, chapter 4, verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9, only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently. How are you going to keep God's commands diligently? Keeping your soul diligently with his word, by his spirit, by the blood of Christ. 
lest thou forget. Ah, that was the warning recently about why we need to be careful not to forget, not to turn from the Lord, not to make him jealous, turning to idols. The, op- the opposite is keep diligently. We don't forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life, but teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. We're going to see that in a moment, but remember, that's right after the great Shema, right? Your heart, love the Lord with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength. What is that but to say, love the Lord exhaustively, love the Lord exclusively, love the Lord zealously, and show it by zealously, diligently, caring about, and trying as best you can to keep hitting the mark better and better, to give a more clear and glorious witness to God and Jesus Christ and his church. Back to chapter 6, but a little earlier, look with me at verse 7. Notice the overlap with how this should spill out into our children deliberately. Diligence is deliberate, and that includes the discipling of our children. But notice this again, verse 7 of chapter 6. And thou shalt teach them diligently. What? The commandments of God. Earlier, after he says, love me with your whole heart, then he says to do that, store all my commandments in your heart. And by the way, if that's happening, teach them to your children diligently. Thou shalt teach the commandments diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. That's what the Lord wants us to see in our family with our, with, with our children. You know, we have our relatives that maybe don't get it as much, our friends, and, you know, out there in the greater life, other perhaps different kinds of Christian backgrounds or just the world. What are you, some kind of zealot? Man, all you do is talk about God all the time. Oh, beloved, may we sound like Pentecostals with the right theology, please. We should just talk about the Lord every other sentence that comes out of our mouth. And we should be about living for the Lord with every little step we take for him. We should just be talking about God, whether we're rising up, whether we're getting down, whether we're eating at the table. Wherever we're going along the way, we should be talking about Jesus with our children constantly, deliberately, excitedly all the way. And people are going to look at us and say, well, that's peculiar. More on that in a moment. Exactly. It is peculiar to see real zeal, isn't it? It's hard to find. But you know it when you see it. And when you find it, you can't stop the person from whatever they're zealous about, can you? And they don't care whether you understand it or not. (laughs) Or they don't care what you think about them particularly. That needs to be us too. We die to ourselves and live for the Lord Jesus Christ and we're more concerned about what they'll think of them. And a lot of times the reason you and I are lacking zeal is we're afraid what they're going to think about us, what they might say about us. But that's not zeal for Jesus and his commands. We need to want them thinking about Jesus all the time and we're just the vessel for such thoughts. By the way we live for him. Enthusiastic personal discipleship that excitedly disciples others for Christ. With great attention. With great affection. As sang in Psalm 119 verse 4 and then is followed by other verses. Verses 16 and 24. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Again, looking to Jesus as our basis for this, but also as our example. In John chapter 2, verse 17, after he passionately cleansed God's temple from making it a marketplace, 
quoting Psalm 69, verse 9, as fulfilled in Christ, it is said, and his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. That needs to be our heart like the Puritans, like the Reformers. It wasn't just about how we get saved, justified by faith alone, grace alone, faith alone, to the glory of God alone, by Scripture alone. And that needs to apply just as much. You know, the Reformation was just as much about fixing worship and how it had been so ruined and lost. Getting back to the pure, simple word of God. What he commands, we do. What he doesn't, we don't even think of doing. Semper Reformanda was so much about reforming our worship to be in line with his commands as close as we know. Not to, not to credit ourselves, but to credit him. He gets what he deserves, what he wants. And his zeal, a zeal for his house says, this doesn't belong in worship, just like Jesus. This doesn't belong here during worship. Get it out of here! And remember, he did it with a whip. And he threw tables over. I don't think he was worried about what anyone thought about him, though many wanted to kill him for it. We should be willing to be zealous for the Lord, even to the point that we might be martyrs for him, like faithful Antipas in Revelation. Remember also the Westminster Confession of Faith on Good Works, chapter 16, section 3 says this. Their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. And that they may be enabled thereunto, beside the graces they have already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will. By the way, Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, the most quoted Old Testament scripture in the New Testament of Christ. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek also says, a willing people in thy day shall follow you. I go on to quote the confession. To work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. What's he, what's, what are they referencing there, right? Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that works in us both to will and do of his good pleasure. goes on to say this, Yet are they not hereupon to grow negligent, or if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the Spirit... You know, don't wait and say, well, I don't really feel like it. God hasn't moved me. Uh, no, the Holy Spirit will move you to produce his fruits. You don't need a lightning bolt to know this is what God calls you to do. And he goes on to say this, but they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. What we're talking about is dedicated devotion. Remember, doing Christ's commandments is love, he says. And those who have been forgiven much, love much. 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, forgive me, I'm going to throw a baby illustration in here. How do I approach my little daughter? Oh, oh, that's good, she's cute. She's so cute. Let me hold her. Compete with her mother to hold her, right? And what do I say to my wife? You're amazing. You did wonderful. Not, oh, good job. Not so bad. <laughs> That's what it's supposed to look like. We go out of our way to encourage. We go out of our way to do and say the right thing. And we do it from within by movement of the Holy Spirit and the grace of Jesus. Good job. I love you, Jesus. Help me do better for you. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 57 and 58. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the resurrection is true, by the way, is the whole chapter. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Think of the Psalms. I jumped over a wall because of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Especially thus seen in how you approach the Lord's day worship and the Lord's supper. Go back and study in the larger catechism how you're to approach worship and how you're to approach the Lord's supper. Have that in your heart as we partake of the Lord's supper in a moment. Finally, I do ask you to turn with me to... Titus in the New Testament. Titus. We're looking at a few scriptures here. The last one will be uh, where we have the name for the sermon from and the main application of our text today. Titus chapter 1. Right after 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus chapter 1. Let's look at verse 16. I remind you, I think this is the, the first uh, book I preached through in the Bible uh, once I was here and used up my sermons from seminary. <laughs> so you can go back for more detail later. But we'll look at a few verses to highlight uh, related to this text today and apply in Deuteronomy. Titus 1 verse 16, here's what should not be your response right now. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. They say they're Christians. They say they're professing Christians, but they've never done so in the church formally. They can't say Psalm 116, I renew my vows before the congregation great because they never ever took any. They've never given any formal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't care about showing up for worship on the Lord's day. Not interested to have the sign of the covenant, Exodus 31 we saw recently. Don't want to live the way the Lord calls us to live. Like a get out of hell free card, but not a way along the pilgrimage lifestyle. We deny our profession by bad works. By a lack of zeal that leads to a lack of works. Look with me now to chapter 3, verse 8. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful. That word we saw in the Psalm 119, the idea of diligence, zealous, that they might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Well, that'd be a fine place to start, but I'm going to turn you back to chapter 2 with me. This is where we get the message, the application of our text today. Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of, that great, of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's like Psalm 45 
that bride waiting for her Lord, wanting to be a sweet-smelling aroma. Uh, that's what Paul talks about again tonight. Uh, Paul says, we saw last week, I believe, we're being presented to the Lord as a chaste virgin. We're, we're, we're waiting for Christ to come back, and we want him to come back seeing us zealously preparing to meet him. And then, verse 14, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. How are they going to be peculiar? Zealous of good works. That's what we're being told in Deuteronomy 6 here today. To be a people zealous of good works. And of course that's referencing Exodus 19.5. That we would be a kingdom of priests and uh, kings of a holy nation. A people zealous unto good works. Peculiar to the, for the Lord. Beloved, your labor is not in vain. Just like birthing a child, just like nursing her and raising her and loving her every moment, sometimes needing to revive the rejoicing, but easy to do. When you remember they're your child, or you remember God is your father and made you his child. So instead of testing Jesus, last week's text, testify for Jesus. Instead of making him jealous, be zealous. Instead of testing, testify by your good works. Give a witness. Let your life be a testimony. Confession of faith, chapter 16, section 2. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel. Stop the mouths of the adversaries and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. It's about giving a witness. Like Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, 13 to 16 in his Sermon on the Mount, his exposition of the law and how wide and deep it applies. Ye are the salt of the earth. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light show so shine before men that they may see what? How are you going to light? How are you going to shine? How are you going to be salt? That they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Beloved, let your good works burn bright and taste great and strongly preserve the gospel and expand it, obeying the great commission to go make disciples, teaching them to be baptized and to obey all of Christ's commandments. Something like this. Here's what it'll look like in terms of being victors in Jesus, more than conquerors, so thankful for him conquering sin in and for you, giving you eternal life and this life of victory to live and live diligently and zealously and abundantly. J. Wilbur Chapman shares, after the battle of Lookout Mountain, when the federal troops cleared the heights with a dash that was irresistible, 
General Grant sent to General Wood and asked, did you order the charge? He said, no. To Hooker and to Sheridan, the same inquiry was put, and from the same response was received. The fact was that the men were filled with such enthusiasm that nothing could have stopped them. They leaped to the fray, defying danger and death, and when the victory was gained, were filled with glad wonder at it. When the church of Christ is filled with enthusiasm for the conquest of the world, it will go forward whether earthly leaders give the word of command or not. Just as Paul has said to us recently in Philippians 2.12, be about these things whether or not I'm there with you. Beloved, when the Lord is really doing a work, you almost don't need the pastor. I mean, we're sheep. I'm a sheep. We always need the pastor, but we always need the officers. But as the Lord does a work more and more, it's almost like we can just stand by and manage and observe and say, look what they're doing. He commands you and me to be diligent in living out his law out of a burning love for our first love. Beloved brethren, in Christ Jesus our Lord, be zealous of good Christian works. And again, that is the message for you today from Deuteronomy 6, 17 to 19, as applied for you particularly by Titus 2, verse 14. Be zealous of good Christian works. May the Lord bless us with such a heart as we approach the Lord's Supper. Let us pray. O Lord God in heaven, we do thank you for the work that you have done for us once and for all. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for working salvation in us and working sanctification as its result. We pray you help us to kill the old man more and more and to vivify the new man more and more. Lord, give us a love and a contagious excitement and enthusiasm. And that is exclusive and exhaustive for you and your ways. Following you, Lord Jesus, who are the way, the truth, and the life along the narrow way, which leadeth unto life, though few there be that find it. Protect us from falling off the path. Keep us on with our eyes set on you, Lord Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And may people talk about us as peculiar because we are such a witness to you by your gracious work in us, living out your good works as light of the world and salt of the earth, that people would be drawn to our Father in heaven and worship you. And we pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord and all your people said, Amen.